Good morning. My name is Stephanie, and I'm a member here at Redemption. And today's readings, we have two of them. Our first one is Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 2 through 6. And then we'll turn to Luke, chapter 4, verses 20, 22 through 30. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Turn with me to page 860. We'll read the passage from Luke. Luke 4, 22 through 30. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me, quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But the truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet of Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, in all the synagogues were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is God's word for us today. Good morning, church. Let's pray together before we look at these passages today. Father, we come to you in anticipation, hoping, expecting that you would open our eyes even today to, to see with clarity one important part of why Jesus came, a part that 
we don't often reflect on this time of year, um, and yet it is so important. And while it is dark and sad and troublesome in many ways, in the, in the strange way that only you can do, God, you have also made it one of the most beautiful and glorious truths that we can rejoice at and celebrate. And so we pray you'd help us to see that today. And would it shape our understanding and meaning of Christmas, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the night of our um, Thanksgiving dinner was just a couple weeks ago. I first heard about the Waukesha Christmas Parade tragedy. It was actually that night that it happened, maybe even during our, our dinner. And so when I got home, I pulled out my phone and I checked the news. And when I saw what happened, like so many of you, I'm sure I was just shocked. Uh, by the scope. I had no clue uh, that it was that horrific. That night, and even for a few days after that, I remember any time I read an article or watched a video about this tragedy, I always noticed I was kind of holding my breath, just waiting and anticipating one specific detail that would come and be reported. And that was, did any children die? I didn't put much thought to it at the time or stop to consider why that specific detail seemed so important to me. But in hindsight, I think it's because the idea of anyone suffering in this way, of course, is, is horrible. But the idea of a child being brutalized during a Christmas parade, it just seems, it's just unthinkable. So eventually, I did see a press conference in which the chief of police listed finally all the victims along with their names and their ages. And I remember listening as he mentioned each one, just listening with anticipation as he said, Virginia Sorensen, 79, Leanna Owen, 71, Tamara Durand, 52, Jane Coolidge, 52, and Wilhelm Hospital, 81. Of course, I grieved at each of those announcements uh, for each of the people lost and, and for all of their loved ones. I have to say, at the same time, I also had a sense of relief. No children were killed at this parade. Thank God. But then, a day or two later, news broke that Jackson Sparks died as a result of his injuries. He was eight years old. And when I heard that, my heart just sunk. It, it put this whole tragedy on a, on a whole different level. There is something so good and so pure about children being loved and being well cared for. It, it's just right. At the same time, there is something especially evil about them being violently harmed. Of course, hearts are heavy uh, for everybody impacted by this tragedy, but in a unique way, especially the Sparks family. Lost such a vibrant, beautiful little boy. Of course, we know that this child we celebrate at Christmas will grow up to be brutally executed. We know this. And yet, for some reason, we manage to keep the wonder of Christmas entirely separate from the horrors of the cross. And yet, 
there is something so profound and so beautiful even that this cross is in many ways the reason Christ was born. Last week we looked at a prophecy from Isaiah in which he told us about a coming servant king who would come proclaiming good news to the poor and reversing all of our bad news. Then we looked at a story in the Gospel of Luke in which Jesus claimed to be that servant king. He stood up, he read that then ancient prophecy, and he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He is the bad news reversing child grown up here for you at your synagogue that day. That was last week. This week we're going to look at a different prophecy from Isaiah about this very same servant king. What we're going to see is that in order to reverse our bad news, he would suffer through some horrific news Himself. Turns out Isaiah's coming servant king is in fact a suffering servant king. He would come to be despised. Then today we're going to fast forward back to that same story in Luke's gospel, that same day in that same synagogue there in Nazareth, and we're going to see that the servant king's suffering will begin as Jesus' fellow Nazareans, the members of his own community, despise and reject him. But as we get started today, I want this image to be sort of seared in your minds. I want this to stick with you, this image, throughout the whole sermon. I want you to picture Christ born in a quiet little unassuming manger, crying and cooing the day of his birth, just destined to be despised and rejected. And for what? For what? The answer to that question is absolutely essential to understanding the true meaning of Christmas. And so with that said, let's look first at part one, this despised and rejected child promised. Turn with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 53. Now, if you remember from last week, I explained that throughout the second half of Isaiah, Over time, his focus starts to narrow in on this one messianic figure whom he calls the servant king. Well, here in chapter 53, we're kind of jumping into the middle of a section in which Isaiah is describing this servant king to us. In chapter 52, the one right before ours, starting in verse 13, Isaiah starts to talk about this servant king in very flattering terms. Look with me, chapter 52, verse 13. He says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But then, very quickly, the tone of this section starts to change. He says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so he shall sprinkle many nations. And so now, all of a sudden, Isaiah is describing this servant king being brutally assaulted in some way, that his appearance was so marred to the extent that it was hard to even tell if he was human. And yet in this way, Isaiah says, he shall sprinkle many nations, presumably with his blood. This is a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system. At this point in Israel's history, this would have been a a law. Actually, the temple was not there. There would have been longing to go back to this time even 
when this would have been commonplace for, for animals to be sacrificed, blood to be sprinkled, it was meant to, be, to cleanse and to atone for the sins of God's people. But apparently, this servant king is going to use his blood to sprinkle many nations, not just the nation of Israel. Then Isaiah explains how strange and unexpected all of this will be for many, many people. And in our passage today, chapter 53, starting in verse 2, he explains why this will be so strange and so unexpected for everyone. And here's why. He says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So on one hand, this is the servant king Jesus just claimed to be from chapter 61. He is the one who's gonna come and eventually reverse all of our bad news and bring us peace forever and ever. And yet on the other hand, when he comes, most people won't even believe it if they notice it at all. He will not enter this world with a huge bang, some media publicity, a loud military parade. That's not the kind of king he is. He will enter this world like a little unassuming plant, a root just kind of sprouts up out of the ground. And not only will people miss him, not only will they misunderstand him when he comes, it gets much worse than that. Look with me at verse three. It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He will not be honored and glorified when he comes. He will be despised and rejected. He will not be a man of power, acquainted with fame and fortune. He will be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He will not be the kind of man that people want to associate with in order to boost their status or reputation. He will be one from whom men hide their faces in disgust, in embarrassment. We will esteem him not. But then listen to the greater spiritual purpose behind this suffering servant's Suffering, And in particular, I want you to listen very carefully to who he will suffer for when he comes. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, which basically means the beating that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. It's not just that this suffering king would come to suffer in this way for no reason, not at all. In fact, we are the reason. He will come and he will suffer in our place that is for our transgressions, for our iniquities, so that we can be healed. His beating his rejection will bring us peace. In case we didn't catch that, Isaiah clarifies and summarizes the servant king's mission once again. Look with me at verse six. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned 
every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the essence of sin. The essence of sin is that we have turned from God's ways and we have insisted on going our own ways. And this is the spiritual condition that marks our world and marks everyone living in our world. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But notice God's solution to this problem. He has laid on him. Church, he has laid on this servant king the iniquity of us all. Think of every terrible thing you've ever thought, every terrible thing you've ever done, all our sheepness, all our self-exalting folly, all of our sin, period. In the suffering and rejection of this servant king, God has laid all of it upon his shoulders. It's not that he came to suffer by accident. It's not even that the humans who killed him were somehow operating outside of God's sovereign purpose and plan. None of that. Fast forward with me, if you will, just just to verse 9. This is really important. Verse 9 of chapter 53. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This was a sinless servant. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, that is God himself, the Lord, has put this suffering servant to grief. This is a Strange, strange prophecy. How is this servant king going to reverse all of our bad news if the moment he enters the world, he's despised and rejected like this? That would have been right there a mystery for many, many people for many, many years as God's people lived in exile. And then, finally, he came to show us how it all would work. Next, in part two, I want us to see the despised and rejected child provided. I want to go back, if you would, to Luke chapter four. Turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter four. Again, we covered the first half of this story last week, but just in case you missed it, uh, Jesus is attending a worship service at the synagogue of his very hometown, Nazareth. Then he got up and he read this very old prophecy from Isaiah chapter 61 about the servant king, And this messianic figure we're talking about today who is called the servant king who would come and reverse our bad news. He gets up and he reads that and then he claims to be this servant king who will reverse all our bad news. He says, today, this is fulfilled. The servant king is here. It's me. Then last week, we also saw that at least at first, the Nazareans were were kind of impressed with Jesus' gracious words, it says, They were at least amused or entertained by the notion that maybe he is this servant king of Isaiah's prophecy. But then we saw a seed of doubt starting to grow in them. As they said, is not this Joseph's son? In other words, don't we know this kid? Isn't he the one who grew up among us? Isn't he kind of one of us? How can he make these claims? 
That's where we pick up the story today. At that moment, excuse me, at that moment in this story, as Jesus begins to sense the doubt in the room, in that synagogue, to address these doubts, he says in verse 23, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, he's saying, I bet you're all pretty skeptical, aren't you? He's saying, I bet you want me to prove myself to you, don't you? You want me to kind of work my magic here for you in my hometown, don't you? Then to kind of turn the tables, Jesus mentions these two somewhat obscure stories from the Old Testament. In the first story, God sends the prophet Elijah to a widow during a famine in order to feed this widow through the ministry of Elijah. And then in the next story, God sends the prophet Elisha to heal a Gentile uh, leper whose name was Naaman. So you might be thinking, well, what in the world is he talking about these stories for? I want you to notice in both stories, first, God is reversing someone's bad news. Just like Jesus said, He was there to do as the great servant king that Isaiah prophesied. And in both cases, not everyone's bad news was reversed. Do you see this? Jesus almost goes out of his way to tell us there were a lot of widows and just the one. There were a lot of lepers and just the one. God specifically chose to help certain people. So Jesus is basically saying, listen, God is not obligated to reverse your bad news just because you are part of his chosen nation. He does choose some and not others. He always has. He is a sovereign, electing God. And so the question is not, should you receive me? As if I'm somehow on the hot seat here. No, the question is, will you receive me? Because friends, it is you who are on the hot seat. I've come, I've told you, the prophecy's fulfilled, the servant king is here, it's me, now it is your turn to respond. It is your move. So what will it be? Are you going to receive me, or are you going to reject me? And their answer, of course, is clear enough. If you look with me at verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him Out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The members of Jesus' own community, the ones who saw him grow up, rejected him and despised him. Even to the extent they wanted to kill him right there on the spot. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. But apparently the sovereign God who's orchestrating all of this determined, nope, uh, that will come, not yet. (laughs) And we don't know how or why this happened. I think we're supposed to read it as a strange uh, intervention of God. But somehow Jesus just passes through their midst. It says, he went away. Now, You may have noticed that Luke does not explicitly come out and tell us that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He doesn't say that. But remember, Jesus did just claim to be him in this very same story. Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 61 are about the same suffering servant. 
Not to mention, of course, we know how the rest of this story goes. This will not be the last time Jesus is despised and rejected. He will keep insisting that he is God's anointed king. Uh, He will keep insisting that not everyone's bad news will be reversed, only those who believe, and he will keep infuriating God's people, especially the elite and the powerful among them. Until in Luke chapter 22, we read this. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Then in chapter 23, Jesus stood before a crowd of his Jewish peers with his life on the line, and Pontius Pilate, at first, the Roman governor, didn't even want to put him to death. In fact, Luke even tells us, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices, Luke tells us, prevailed. Now, church, as we read that, these ancient words of Isaiah's prophecy should be ringing in our ears. They made his grave with the wicked. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And so what do these passages teach us? And in particular, what do they teach us about the story of Christmas? Church, I think they reveal that Jesus was born to be rejected so that we could be accepted. Jesus was born to be rejected so that we can be uh, accepted. In a sense, he was born to be despised by us. In a sense, he was born so that the Lord could lay on him the iniquity of us all. He was born to be beaten and brutalized and even killed so that by his wounds we would be healed. We don't often consider this as we reflect on the meaning of Christ's birth. As you reflect on the meaning of Christ's birth, you may feel warmth and affection in your hearts for this joyous little baby boy. But what about the man he grew up to be? What about the teachings that wound up having him killed? What about the claims that he made about our sin and about our need for him as our redeemer? Could it be that we don't really adore this child as much as we like to think we do? this time of year, especially when he grows up, especially when he shows up in our synagogues, especially when he starts making all kinds of claims and demands on our life. In our passages today, 
we can see that some of the people who were closest to Jesus, some of the people who in many ways should have received him, actually despised and rejected him. But more importantly, we also see a few important examples of why many people despise him. And I think we'll find them pretty insightful. And so with that said, what I want to do to apply these passages is just to consider, why might we actually despise this child who was born at Christmas? Why? I'm going to share three reasons from these passages that I think we see here very clearly. The first reason is this. We might despise him because he has become familiar to us. It's kind of like that kid we grew up with, right? It's nothing too exciting about him. Uh, Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home. You had faithful Christian parents who took you to church every Sunday, and they still go, sure enough, to that same church every Sunday. And every year around this time, you're usually part of a nice Advent series like this one that focuses on a lot of themes very similar to this one with the same imagery, the same songs, the same phrases as this one. For as long as you can remember, you've been in a small group the, the, the frequency may go up and down during different seasons, but you always try to have a regular rhythm of Bible reading and prayer. You've always been in a small group. You've always served on a team. You see where I'm going with this. But with all the time and the mental energy that you have invested in Jesus' direction over the years, your walk with Christ and even the Christian faith in general just feels very familiar to you. Christmas doesn't feel like this joyous celebration of the coming of your eternal, all-sufficient king. It feels about as exciting to you as a little plant growing up out of the ground. Great. Joy to the world, right? Another Christmas. The novelty has worn off. The enthusiasm is gone, and a kind of cynicism has crept in. You put up with spiritual conversations, but if you're honest, they kind of annoy you. And deep down inside, even though you are a regular, you are at this Nazarene synagogue every Sabbath day, yet there is very little affection for Christ in your heart. In all of our religious devotion, could it be that Jesus has become so familiar to us that we esteem him not. Even better question, have we forgotten that this child was born to be crushed for us? Have we forgotten that this body miraculously knit together by God's spirit in Mary's womb would later be spit on and whipped and nailed to a cross that it would be pierced with a spear and laid in a tomb all for our transgressions and our iniquities because we, like sheep, have gone astray. Or maybe you, you never knew that. You didn't understand that. Now, you've always thought at least you were very familiar with Jesus. You've grown up decorating a Christmas tree every year and singing these songs about a little boy who was born that man no more may die. But you have just now realized that he was born so that he could die to make all of these joyous 
glorious things true for us. Maybe it has just now dawned on you that your sin and the rebellion in your heart are the very reason he was born, to be brutally despised and rejected. Church, this child was not just born to be our buddy. He was not just born to be some casual acquaintance, like a family friend. No, this is not just Joseph's son. It's not Joseph's son at all. This child is the son of the living God, and he was born to be crushed for us. So will you prepare him room this Christmas? Will you bow before him in adoration, or will you just kind of roll your eyes and move on? Jesus, yeah, I get it, I know. This is, this is the first reason we might despise him. We see in these passages, he's become too familiar to us. We can't see how glorious he really is. The next reason is this. He's not what we were expecting. He's not what we were expecting. Uh, maybe you signed up for this Christianity thing expecting it to make your life easier uh, maybe you made sort of an emotional decision to just kind of identify as a follower of Jesus because you just really loved the idea that he came to reverse all of your bad news. That sounded great to you. And at first, when he got up and read that prophecy and claimed to be your servant king, oh, you spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth only to find in time that following this Jesus is really, really hard. That he has a way of challenging us and convicting and confronting us in our sin. It's never comfortable. And by the way, so do a lot of the people who follow him as well. They don't often affirm and um, praise us or appreciate us in the way that we'd like them to. Not to mention being a follower of Jesus doesn't often uh, boost our popularity. <laughs> it doesn't help us to win any popularity contests. In fact, maybe it has even created a new layer of tension in your family life or your workplace. And maybe as all of these expectations are being violated week in and week out, the truth is more and more you don't really esteem this child quite as much as you thought you would. You may even esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Look, if, if I'm going to have this hard of a time, if following Jesus is gonna stretch me and strain me this much, my goodness, maybe he's not worth my esteem. Maybe I shouldn't come and adore him. You may be so sick of your unmet spiritual expectations you're just ready to throw him off a cliff. Just give up on this whole Christianity thing all together. Church, when Jesus violates our expectations and we are disappointed with the Christian life or the Christian church, rather than counting the iniquities of these things, of the church, or the costs that all Christians inevitably pay for following Jesus, it is helpful instead to count our iniquities and to remember that this Christ was born to bear them for us. 
If our Christianity is about these superficial uh, religious goals that we have, like proving ourselves in some way, or, or like gaining cultural power or status, well, before long, the varnish of that religion is going to fade, and our true colors are going to show. We will grow bitter and cynical. We will only see the burdens of following Jesus, never the joys. And, and most importantly, we will lack faith in Christ for today, and we will lack hope in Christ for the future. Because the things that we were wanting out of this deal, the things that we were expecting are not the things he's come to give us, at least not here and now. And as that proves to be true all the more, the more we want to throw him off a cliff. But on the other hand, if at the very center of our Christian identity is this message, this message that we like sheep have gone astray, every one of us have turned to his own way, and yet this child, this Christ, even when we were hostile towards him, even when he had every reason to despise and reject us, this Christ has come down to be despised and rejected by us so that we can be accepted by his Father. If that truth is at the very center of our spiritual life, church, it will guard us against all religious cynicism and religious pride and self-righteousness. It will humble us. It will make us dependent. It will fill us with hope because we will see our sin through the lens of his suffering and his rejection. It is so important. But if this gospel is not at the center of our spiritual lives, if we build our Christianity on a different foundation than following Jesus, or trying to at least, we'll constantly violate our expectations until we eventually just despise and reject him. One day you'll hear the wrong sermon, it will fill you with wrath, and you'll just storm out and throw him off the cliff, if you will. You'll give it all up because you weren't expecting a Messiah who suffers. We weren't expecting a Messiah who calls us to suffer, but that is precisely the problem because that is exactly the Messiah God has told us would come, a suffering servant king. So maybe at this point you're feeling a bit discouraged Maybe you're starting to realize, well, yeah, you know, I guess I don't actually adore this Jesus as much as I like to think this time of year. Well, let me just say to you, hang in there. We got one more reason, and I think you may be surprised as you hear this reason. The final reason we despise and reject Jesus in this way is, number three, God knew that we would. God knew that we would and it was all part of his plan to redeem us. Church, here I just want to talk about this profound truth that the suffering and rejection of Christ by us was not just some accident that God allowed. It was the very pinnacle of his plan to redeem us. He had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord all along to crush him. This was not an accident. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
This is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Fancy theological word, but here it is right here in the Old Testament. Penal just means that it was given as a penalty. Jesus substituted himself in our place to atone for our sins. He didn't just die for sin in theory, in general. He died for the specific sins of specific people. He was pierced for our transgressions, the wickedness that we've done. He was crushed for our iniquities, church. These are the things, this record of sin that he has nailed to his cross. So listen very carefully here. As evil as it is that we would despise this child, as heinous as it is that we would reject him, as horrific as it was that we mocked him and we beat him and we killed him in all of these things, God was working to redeem us. If that has not blown your mind, you do not understand it or, or, or you don't believe it. It's this great hymn we often sing in regular times outside of Advent says, it was our sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And yet, his dying breath has brought us life. I know that it is finished. Church, what we have intended for evil, and not just evil, the greatest of all evils, the murder of God's own son, what we intended for evil, God has used for our ultimate good. Listen, you will never find a greater God than this suffering servant king right here. You will never find him. If you're here today and you're feeling weighed down by the guilt that you never really have loved and adored this Jesus in the way you should, there is only one response. There is only one response, and that is to repent of your hatred for him. It is to repent of turning to your own way and to humbly receive the grace that he suffered and died to extend to you. This is why he was born. He was born to be despised and rejected so that we could be accepted by his father. And what response is there for that other than to come, 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 let us adore him. Let's pray. Father, we are dumbfounded. If we have paid attention and if we have listened with soft hearts that would receive your word, we are dumbfounded. This is what Christmas was ultimately about. In the birth of this child, you have given us the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, you have sent this sinless, pure, holy light into the world to be crushed by our darkness, God. And would that, above all else, stir up in us the deepest of affections 
that would long us to, for us to cling God to Christ in faith. And rather than despising and rather than rejecting, would we in that faith, God, by the power of your spirit now even, would we pour out our adoration to him? Praise God from whom all blessings flow, God. This is the greatest of them all. We thank you.